So I appreciate the deep sincerity of everyone here. And of course, um, Anne and I met with you all in small groups yesterday and saw half the group today, and we'll see the other half tomorrow. And I know Anne has been seeing people too, and I think I can speak for her and say that we're touched the heart. This world um, desperately needs love and awareness so that we can become wiser. And I said this last night, you know, there's 14, 15 countries represented here, which is, uh, it, it offers some hope to bringing back this practice, these teachings, in your own country, in your own language, in your own culture. And more and more due to the internet, uh, we are becoming more and more a global community. I mentioned too about the, you know, how with the internet we can be in contact with things most instantaneously anywhere in the world. I was surprised when I was in the Finnish Lapland in the Arctic, 220 kilometers above the Arctic Circle, and the internet was there too. <laughs> this, this, <laughs> last year I was in the Amazon, it was there too. It's like everywhere, for good and for bad. <laughs> But it's amazing with uh, the technology of how we can connect. You know, when I first started going to Asia in um, 1980, some of you might not even know this, I used to communicate with a, a written aerogram. Anybody know an aerogram? So some of, anyone not know what's an aerogram? Aerogram was a very thin piece of paper and uh, I would, it would take me about three months to get a response on this aerogram. It'd take a month to get to Burma, then a month for people to respond and write back, and then another month for it to go back from Burma to the United States. It would take three months for communication, and now I can call my friend and FaceTime or Zoom with them in a second. So it's kind of amazing that we're becoming more and more a global community. And this, this potentially can hold some promise if we use our technology wisely. And bringing the human family closer than perhaps it's ever been. And may we learn from each culture and grow. It seems that we're at kind of a threshold and um, may we rise up to bring peace. And this peace in one of the most radical acts ever begins inside ourselves.
There's a folk song that says, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And so these type of retreats are very powerful ways to begin to make peace. Last night, I think I opened with a William Stafford poem, and I'm going to open up with another. And this is a poem, it's called The Way It Is, and he wrote this three days before he died. It was his last poem. He had a habit of waking up evidently early in the morning and writing a poem a day, and so again, this was his last one. And it's really beautiful. He says, there's a thread you follow and it goes among the things that change, but it doesn't change. And people wonder about what you're pursuing and you have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. And while you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. And you don't ever let go of the thread. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding and you don't ever let go of the thread. So each of us is carrying our own thread May it guide us. So I wanted to, um, <clears throat> pardon me, continue the, the story of the sojourn of Siddhartha, who later became a Buddha. I had um, mentioned part of the story first full day that evening the heavenly messengers and I think I left off um, him leaving the palace <coughs> and <coughs> beginning to embark upon this journey to understand the meaning of life. And so he began his quest by studying and apprenticing with other meditation teachers. And he was a really good student. And after a period of time, from one teacher to the next, he would master everything that the teacher had taught. And so much so that many of the teachers said, well, you know everything that I've taught and you can you sit with me and teach with me. But after that was said, Siddhartha realized that he still didn't understand deeply about the meaning of life. Many of the meditations taught in that time in northern India were meditations that are under the category of what we call concentration. And these are very powerful practices, and you can become so at one with the object that you're concentrating upon that you develop uh, absorptions in Pali, they're called jhanas, and there's 
material jhanas, immaterial jhanas, is all told about eight different um, stages of profound concentration, <coughs> unification, oneness, becoming at one with the object. And no doubt, with many of these types of meditative practices of concentration, they produce tranquility, serenity, again, one-pointedness, unification. And while you're experiencing that uh, type of practice of absorption, your mind is very tranquil, it's serene, it's unified. Sense of happiness, oneness, connection, interconnection. So no doubt Siddhartha Gautama was very talented in developing these absorptions, but even though he could calm his mind down and experience such deep serenity and tranquility, it still wasn't answering his questions that related to aging, illness, and death. So gradually he continued his journey and he came across uh, and what he had heard was these ascetics that practice self-mortification. That is the punishing of the body. And there he took on very extreme practices of self-mortification. One in particular was the lessening of his food intake till gradually he was uh, eating just one grain of rice a day. As time went on, he became thinner and thinner, and gradually he became actually skeletal. He began to lose so much of his energy. He could tell that he was um, getting weaker and weaker. And at a certain point, he realized that if he went much further, he would certainly die. He was starving to death. It said when he put his hand on his belly, he could almost feel his tailbone. And at a certain moment, he just realized the futility <clears throat> of punishing the body, that this was not the way to enlightenment. And so the story goes that he left this group, small group of ascetics, five ascetics, and he began to nourish his body again to restore his health, and he came across a beautiful tree, and he decided to take his seat underneath the tree, and he took kind of a resolve inside his heart. The resolve was that he was not going to leave this tree, that he was going to stay there. He'd been to so many different teachers and experienced so many different teachings and that it was time for him to see for himself with his own experience, what is this life? And if not, he'll, he'll just stay there till he dies. There's no need to go anywhere else. Let him just stay right there. So he took this very uh, important resolve to stay there, to see for himself with his own experience. And it's said that as he settled in and began to develop his concentration like he had done in the past, 
And perhaps because of the setting of the day and just what was happening at that moment, his mind wandered off from getting into a place of absorption and, and, and he recalled the memory of when he was a younger boy sitting underneath another tree on a very beautiful day, just like this one. And he recalled this memory of when he was a boy and how he, that he was underneath this other tree and then how that he was experiencing this oneness and the beauty and the interconnection of life. And that filled him with joy, that memory of, oh yeah, that day with that beautiful, just the right weather and temperature and breeze and so forth. And um, he also recalled, after remembering that beautiful day, that there was something else that came up on this day that he had entirely forgotten about. And what he remembered was looking over at another pasture and another field, and he saw a few farmers there and some oxen and a plow. And they were getting ready to turn over the soil to begin to put seed in the ground and to plant. And he remembered that as the plow blade went into the earth, and perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened. And of course, that feeling of such the life is just so precious and beautiful. As the plow blade went into the ground, perhaps because of his sensitivity, he almost felt as if he could hear the cries of the worms being cut open. And it was in this moment that he also felt this preciousness of life and the fragility of life, the heart-breaking qualities of life. It's a powerful moment. Of course, as the years went by, he had forgotten that, that time and was filled with all of his sense delights and everything else. So he, you know, he went on to live in this dream world for many years, but here it was many years later. He was now 29 years old. He had left the palace. He had traveled, learned a meditation from different masters, and now he's underneath this tree, having just barely survived these severe practices of self-mortification, and then recalling this memory of when he was a young boy and this beautiful day sitting underneath another tree, and again, that beauty of the day, but then the heartbreaking, the fragile qualities, sensing and almost feeling again the sounds of those worms crying out in pain. And perhaps because of that memory and, and how it touched him so deeply, as he recalled it so many years later, now sitting underneath this tree, so he just acknowledged this moment of the heartbreaking qualities of life and the beautifulness of life. And then he continued on in his meditation practice, but perhaps because of that memory, that experience of the fragility and the preciousness of this life, he decided rather than getting into a total space of absorption, 
to become at one with the breath, to become unified, rather than becoming at one with the breath. He changed his focus to becoming aware how the breath came in and went out. So he began to use his concentrated awareness on penetrating into impermanence, which he had never, ever done before. But again, I think that memory that evoked the worms and the pain and the beauty of life, he shifted the focus of his meditation practice. Again, he had never, ever done this before. Being aware of the breath as it comes in and goes out. And the story goes, as he got more and more focused on this penetrating mark of an impermanence, it gave rise to deep, intuitive insights and understandings about suffering, about the causes of suffering, about a path that can lessen it, These are powerful realizations that later became known as the Four Noble Truths. The first realization is that life indeed has its heart-breaking qualities. And it's not to say that all of life is like that, but there are times when, you know, there is anguish, there is suffering, there is anxiety, dissatisfaction, discomfort, discontentment, frustration, misery, sorrow. I'm looking up in the dictionary all these different descriptors. Stress, uneasiness, unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness. There's a lot of different words for this. The Buddha realized that there is indeed suffering or dissatisfactoriness or this, I kind of like the heartbreaking qualities of life. And it was a very sobering, a very sobering realization about this understanding of suffering. And as he turned his attention to, is there a cause for this suffering? What are the causes? And then some insights began to arise that perhaps the most deepest of causes is unawareness or ignorance. My teacher, Tampu Lucero, used to say that the midnight is dark and the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance or unawareness. And because of this ignorance or this unawareness, it gives rise in the belief that perhaps happiness can be found outside of oneself. Kind of a misconception that gives rise to certain types of cravings. And I also just want to acknowledge that every one of us, I would assume, wants to be happy. And that we as human beings have a a longing to be whole, to be home, to be happy, to be with ease. I think the question that the 
Buddha was looking at is where do we find this happiness? And I said earlier today about that word utopia that means nowhere, but it could also spell now here. Where is happiness to be found? It's even interesting that uh, the Latin word for desire comes from desidere, and the root is desidious, which means from the stars. Let's see what the stars will bring. It's interesting how it um, points to the stars because, of course, we as human beings with these atoms that make up this body come from the supernovae, come from exploding stars. But this notion of this unawareness that gives rise to craving is this looking for happiness. And where is it to be found? Is it inside or is it outside? Of course, there is things that make us feel on the outside really good. And so we get kind of tricked with these things because they make us feel so good. We perhaps understand the root of addictions because addictions makes us feel so good and we want more. It's also important to say that in Buddhist psychology, Craving or desire is not considered morally wrong. It's not like a sin. But it's simply defined that it's a cause of suffering. And why is that? Because suffering, I mean, because desire or craving keeps you wanting what you can't fully have or possess. It keeps you wanting what you want to possess, but it keeps on going away. I have a friend of mine who's actually a Dharma teacher, but in her earlier years, she was a heroin addict. And I once asked her, what was, I've never done heroin, and I asked her, what was your experience of heroin? And she said, it was the greatest feeling I ever experienced in my entire life. And then every injection after that, I tried to get it again but I couldn't, I couldn't get it. I couldn't hold on to it. I think that's kind of a powerful definition, like this, this wanting, but you can't get it. It's a yearning, it's a craving, it's a hungering, it's a thirsting. It's a powerful feeling, this, this craving, this wanting to feel good, and of course, we can have it be in with so many things, from food to sex to money to fame and many, many ways this craving and desire can go. It actually says in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than greed and no ice colder than hatred and no fog thicker than ignorance. Due to these misconceptions, we have this belief that we can find this lasting happiness, this pleasure outside of us. And this gives rise, rise to a, a, some unease, some suffering. There's a beautiful translation from the Dharma on the, the cause of suffering, which is the second noble truth. 
It says that the noble truth of the cause of suffering is ignorance and craving, and particularly a craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody have any compelling and intoxicating cravings? I like that. It is a craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. And namely, it's the craving for sensual delights, the craving to be someone or to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. So from a... um, psychological sense, or I think it's important to, to, I think it's ingenious that so many years ago the Buddha identified some of these causes of suffering, of craving, relating to trying to find happiness through, for example, sensual delights. This is the libidinal instinct, eros, its operative is to feel good. And there's so many different ways to feel good, whether it's, you know, of food, sex, even shopping. You know, it's no joke that, and I don't work for Amazon, but they have this like one click, you own it. it, You know, Judd Brewer from now from Brown, he's actually, this is one of his big areas of research is what happens to your body and mind when you when you get an email, when you click like an Amazon, like there's like little little opioids just dancing in your brain. It's like, it feels so good, you own it. One click, you own it. It feels so good that, well, but now it's gone. I gotta click it again, because it feels so good that you own it, 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 it owns you. Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, and yet it keeps on spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe. But I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. This poem goes on for years. <laughs> so you can say in so many ways that, um, and the Rolling Stones perhaps coined it well, I just can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> no matter how much I try, and I try, and I try, I just can't get no, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> but it's that like, like, yeah, there's like this, there's just no satisfaction. But this yearning, but it's so addictive. Don't you just like, isn't it just so addictive because it feels so good? You want more. One time eating my favorite food and it was just about getting empty and I was getting all sad. What am I going to do in my life? I could go get some more of it. But I could see that trap. But it's so easy to fill things up, to get lost in sensual delight. Because it feels good. I don't know about you, but I love losing myself in sensual delight. Does anybody <laughs> like that? 
it just feels so good, like have a piece of chocolate, make love, whatever it is, like to just lose yourself in that pleasure, it just feels good. And can, would anybody admit that? <laughs> Raise your hands, come on, I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, look around, see we're human. We're human beings, we're human. To get lost in the pleasure, it feels so good. But it doesn't do it, right? You can be lying in bed if you do have a partner and still feel like you're alone. So, so it's beautiful to share, of course, the intimacy with one another or enjoy, um, you know, food or whatever. But it's all in our relationship to it. Again, we speak about wise relationship. And there was a teacher, a Thai forest master, his name was Achan Cha. And he used to always speak about how much he loved his teacup. One time he gave a whole Dharma talk on why he loved his teacup. <laughs> and finally, someone had the courage to say, Acha, I thought you were saying, like, whatever you get attached to, it has a lot of suffering. And he just laughed and laughed. And he said, I love my teacup. <laughs> And then finally said, well, what do you mean? He goes, I love this teacup. I already know it's broken, but in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy it. So it's, again, I love that story of like a, like a wise relationship. It's not like that teacup is, I'm dependent upon that for my happiness. So we can enjoy, but it's our question of, you know, are we clanging to this? Is it identifying with it as our full happiness? Or can we... Let go. Not so easy to let go, as I was saying yesterday. But that quality of understanding it, it's already broken. or I can use it, but I can and enjoy it, but I also can let go of it. It's a beautiful way. So this craving for sensual delight is a place where we can get caught in the belief that this will give me this happiness, just like my friend, trying to find that fix of heroin that would somehow make it okay, but it could not be found. Second type of craving is to be someone, narcissism, egocentricity. And of course it has its fluctuations of inflation and deflation. But it's all about I, I, yay I. I recall in one meditation retreat, a meditator, um, I, was, I was observing, it was during a walking meditation, and he, he was just walking so slowly, and there was something majestic about the way that he was walking that was very beautiful to see. Sometimes, like, looking out on the ocean in these old clipper ships and how they, like, kind of just majestically um, go along in the ocean, and he looked kind of like a majestic walking meditator clipper ship. And um, during a um, practice discussion, he, he was uh, sharing that, um, that that particular day when uh, he was talking about his walking meditation. I had actually seen him walking. It was very beautiful. And, and he, so he, anyways, he candidly said, you know, uh, there was this one walking meditation, and I was walking really, I thought, really good. And, 
And I looked around and, and I realized I was the best walking meditator <laughs> in, the, in the whole retreat. There had never been a better walking meditator than me. And then as soon as he said that and felt that, the opposite came. How could I even think something like this? I am the worst meditator that there ever existed in my entire in the, in the whole universe. So you can see the inflation and the deflation. One side of the coin comes very quickly. But this craving to be someone is a powerful thing. I shared with you about the, you know, with that hospital administrator about looking for approval. How much of the time are we putting ourselves out there to be to impress another? But deep down, I'm looking for validation, for approval, for your acceptance. How many times have we left ourselves? And the funny thing is, is that everyone else is taken in life except for ourselves. So perhaps this is the time. That beautiful poem from Pablo, from. Um, Derek Walcott, where he says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door and mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. Love again this stranger who is yourself, who knows you by heart. But how many times have we left ourselves for recognition to be seen? So perhaps you could say it's like I'm looking for love from an old country western song in all the wrong places. I'm looking outside of me for love rather than inside me. And things are so funny, you know. I, I think many of you probably use Facebook or some of you. And I remember doing a post so many years ago, and and um, and I I saw that it had 199 likes on something I had posted, and. I saw in my mind, it said, well, you know, it'd be good to get 200. <laughs> like, would really 200 really do it? And of course, I did get that, and then I went, well, how about 201? It's, it's never enough. It's never enough if I have the belief that something outside of me is going to give me the juice to know that I am okay if I don't know this for myself. So this craving to be someone is a place that many of us can get caught. Because somehow inside, due to our narrative and story, we may believe that we are actually not enough. And this conditioning is very powerful for us. And I John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Myla wrote a really exquisite book called Everyday Blessings, The Art of Mindful Parenting, and um, it's one of my favorite books. And they speak about three important areas in raising children, and the first is to accept them and to have empathy for them. And then this third is this uh, word at first, I didn't quite know what they meant. They said sovereignty. And from their perspective, sovereignty means that we honor our children's, you know, that we don't shame them, that we support them to grow with confidence.
And there's times where we have been smashed and made to feel small. And all of us, at one point, we, we had this sovereignty. So perhaps part of this journey is to, to reignite it, what we had lost. And to me, infants are great creatures of sovereignty. Because an infant really doesn't care what you think. If I had an infant over here and it decided to have a bowel movement in front of all of you, it could care less. <laughs> if it wanted to pee, it'll just pee. If it wants to throw up, it'll just throw up. If it's a fart, it'll just it'll, you know, ba Babies just being baby. This is what baby does. And that's why we just love them so much, because they are just so much themselves. So there's a certain type of sovereignty that a, that a baby has and their innocence and they're not knowing. And as time goes on, perhaps we get smashed, we get shamed, we're made to feel small, we lost that sense of our own sovereignty. We desperately want to be accepted and to be loved and to be accepted by others. So this looking for love at times in all the wrong places, rooted with this misconception, the belief perhaps that I can find my wholeness if other people will accept and like me. Again, looking for love in all the wrong places. And then the third is this craving to feel nothing. Thanatos, the death instinct, annihilation rooted in the belief that <clears throat> perhaps my pain can go away if I'm just not here. And it kind of it manifests itself in numbing out, getting disassociated, disconnected, drugs, alcohol. We can lose ourselves in television, the internet, radio, puzzles. I mean, there's thousands of ways to not be here. Some years ago, unfortunately, um, <coughs> with a happy uh, moment um, or result. Um, there was a time where possibly my oldest son, there was some speculation of him having a cancer, but it turned out to not be that. But I remember during that time, all I wanted to do was sleep. And I was actually writing a talk about a Dharma talk and and it was very revealing to me because I didn't quite get this craving to feel nothing until this experience because all I wanted to do was not to feel anything. I just wanted to sleep because the moment I woke up, it was too painful to be awake with the possibility of my son being ill. And like, oh, this is what is meant by the craving to feel nothing. And I had that big time. I just didn't want to feel anything. So sometimes, yes, we can just numb out, disassociate, lose ourselves in things so we don't have to feel. So these are very powerful cravings. The third noble truth is the understanding that if one can begin to lessen this ignorance and this craving, 
one can experience greater peace. And that peace is to be experienced and found through the fourth great realization. It really just is pointing in a very practical way of how we live our lives through the development of living virtuously, that our livelihood and speech is with integrity, the practices of mindfulness and concentration, steadying the mind and developing understanding. This are different aspects of what's called the, the Eightfold Path, how to live our lives to grow with virtue, concentration, and wisdom. So this is our human condition, and you know, it's very interesting um, for you know, all of us, and I heard this actually um, a bit here in the last couple of days, this longing to belong, this longing for connection. And it's fair to say that for all of us, we, we originally came from that place, a place of connection, in the sense that on a physiological level, um, we were conceived with an egg and a sperm, and we developed into a fetus, and an umbilical cord was connected to the mother, uh, to the baby, with the placenta. And so there's a, there's a definite physiological connection that's happening there, as well as hopefully an emotional one, even being bonded within the womb, if we're lucky enough. And of course, at a certain point, we get too big, and we got to get out of there. <laughs> One way or another, we got to get out of there. And we do get out of there, because you're here. <laughs> and, uh, but there's this moment, born out of the sense of the union of the sperm and the egg and the embryo and the fetus and the umbilical cord, and then we're birthed, and then there's this powerful moment, and probably we may not remember it, where there's a scissors or a knife, and that umbilical cord is cut. It's cut. And we have become separated from an organism that had been living, connected, become separate. It's a powerful moment. Cord is cut. So perhaps um, this journey is, how do we walk our way back home? We're much too big now to fit back inside mother's womb. My, my poor mother's small and she's 90. There's no way I'm going to fit in there. <laughs> but it's this journey back home. And I think one of the powerful realizations of the Buddha was where is this home to be found? Is it... Outside, is it inside? And I think many of us, from time to time, may have moments and glimpses of being home. I've actually heard from some people here already, there was like a moment where I just felt connected. Paul Simon, singer-songwriter, he has this song called You Think Too Much. But he describes in this song, A Moment of Grace, that I really like. 
He says, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain took a seat just behind your face and everything was just sunny and everything was just funny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And I think perhaps every one of us at some moment in our life, we just, there was just a moment where we were just connected. It was just, uh, maybe it was barely even noticeable, but a moment that it, it was just sunny, it was just funny. It was a moment of grace. And in that moment, we are connected. We are the universe. We are the world. And then we forget that. Where is this home to be found? Is it inside? Is it outside? I remember once the story of Ramana Maharshi, one of the great saints of India in the last century, and he was dying of cancer, and his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go, please don't leave us. And evidently Ramana Maharshi said to them, where am I going? I ain't going anywhere. I love that. I ain't going anywhere. This human condition, finding our way home. And who is it that finds the way home? Who is this self? This is what I really want to speak about. The self. So, okay, right? This cord is cut. There we go. The cord is cut. There's a sense of separation. And then, of course, we begin to interact with our environment. And, of course, we begin to get shaped by our environment. We begin to develop an identity related to the caregivers around us, to those closest to us. We begin to develop this sense of self a personality, an identity. And of course, this is what happens to every one of us. But, you know, at first, this cord is cut. We're this piece of clay, and we get shaped by our experience. And I think I shared, I don't know if I shared with all of you or some of you in a group, but, you know, I, the way that we get shaped can be a blessing or it could be, um, in some ways, almost like a curse. There was a person that we worked with once some years ago that her mother used to say to her all the time, I wish I never had you. And to be told that at such an early age, you could begin to believe that that is true and that is your identity. We have many different things that have been oppressed upon us so these identities grow, sometimes filled with grace and led to develop confidence, others to, to feel incompetent. So the question of identity in the Dharma is a, a very huge subject. In the second teaching that the Buddha taught, so the first one was this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the second is called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, which means the teachings of the selfless nature of things, where the Buddha teaches about these marks of existence, of dissatisfactoriness. 
of impermanence and the selfless nature of things. And it's nice that John Kabat-Zinn has offered a, a more contemporary definition. Instead of suffering, he says in his streetwise language, shit happens. <laughs> and for impermanence, he says, hey, things change. And for the selfless nature of, of things, he says, don't take it so personally. So this, this is kind of like his reiteration of the three marks of existence. Shit happens, things change, don't take it personally. But that's rooted in these ancient teachings of the Dharma. But it's not so easy to take things personally. So I just want to acknowledge that. I just want to acknowledge that, that, that this sense of Self is huge. And of course, one of the hallmarks of Western civilization is when Descartes declared, I think, therefore I am. It's kind of like putting down the flag. I think, therefore I am. So these teachings in the Dharma of the selfless nature of things rubs up against our status, our roles, our ethnicity, our ego, this teaching of the selfless nature of things. And so I want to speak about this tonight because I think it's very important. The selfless nature of things. The perennial question through the ages has been, who am I? Where is this self to be found? Is it in the head hair, the body hair, the nails, the teeth, the skin? Is there some way, the Buddha reasoned that um, if there was a self, you could say self, don't get sick. Don't age. Don't lose your head here. <laughs> so these practices in these teachings is a teaching of the selfless nature of things. And I want to kind of unpack this a bit to help demystify this teaching. I think some of you have heard about this, right? The selfless nature of things. and It's kind of perplexing, isn't it? Like, what, what, what are they, what's being talked about? One of the experiences of the awakened Buddha said that he experienced the unconditioned. And so this implies that if there's an unconditioned, there must be a condition. And that condition is our stories, our narratives, and our identifications. And again, these identifications develop very, very early in life. 
Some theorists even speculate that part of this identifications begin in utero, but certainly as we're born, and begin to develop, the sense of identification begins, a personality, an identity, a collection of I, me, and my. But it's very interesting that um, from a neuroscience point of view, it's very difficult for neuroscientists to identify a place in the brain or anywhere in the body where there is this sense of self. They describe it more as a bunch of subsystems and sub-subsystems. And Daniel Siegel, I really love, he says, the self is more like a verb, a plural verb than a singular noun. I like that. So this identity is something for us to look and investigate pretty closely with. And there's actually a, a beautiful reading by Margaret Wheatley that speaks to the possibility that when we become aware, we can begin to notice something new. And she says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference, and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. And this is perhaps one of the most beautiful gifts of mindfulness, is that we're breaking the self-reference so that we can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness. I know there's some um, teachings about, you know, at a certain time in our lives, we individuate from our parents and our families and we go off on our own. And if we're lucky enough to see who we've individuated into, we might spend the rest of our lives unindividuating who it is that we individuated into. Because <laughs> if we're lucky enough to see that we've individuated, Many, many do not. Completely lost in the matrix. So the sense of this identification of self and the blinders that we experience in only seeing in a certain way. Actually, um, Anne and I have a good friend from China, Kevin Wong, and Kevin once brought me to the Great Wall of China and, and he was saying that inside the wall, they're all right. Outside of the wall, everyone else is a barbarian. <laughs> and that, that's kind of the belief, like this is the us and the them, the, the identification. This is me, and this is how I see it, and everyone else is a barbarian. <laughs> These identifications can imprison us. I had a, a good friend that, uh, growing up, 
he had a rough time growing up. His mother committed suicide with alcoholism and drugs, and his father was a military commander, and there was four sons, and he had three brothers, and um, they had a small place, and my friend was kind of clumsy. It would knock things over, and his father would get very angry with him, and he, he would call him names. And one of the names that he called him was, um, and you probably have, you may have heard of the children's story, King Midas. And King Midas had the, the quality that whatever King Midas touched, it turned to gold. But his father called his son King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. That's a hard thing to be called. And you imagine being told that or this woman I knew with a mother saying, I wish I never had you, and these stories of shaming, humiliation. Very painful. We begin to develop identities of deficiency and adequacy. And for many of us, we've been shamed. We've been made to feel small. I had an uncle that used to make jokes with me when I used to go get some peanuts that my grandmother would, would put out on the table to, for, for everyone to have. And he'd say, oh, here comes, he would call me the claw. I had fingers, not claws. But there was something about how he said it that felt so humiliating. And I just wanted to kind of disappear. It was shaming. So many of us have had experiences where our sovereignty was lost. Our identity became intertwined with deficiency and adequacy. <coughs> so these Dhamma teachings on identity are extraordinarily important because, because of these identifications, we may see the world in these certain out of these certain lenses, and this is how we just see the world. And we don't know that there's another way. And so to me, when the Buddha awakened, he saw through these stories, these narratives, these, these constructions, saw through the greed, the hatred, the ignorance, and experienced profound insight and wisdom and understanding. And this is a possibility for every one of us is to begin to see through these stories that we have identified with that have enslaved us, that have hold us hostage. This is why in this practice, it's very interesting. Uh, it's, it's, it's both incredibly personal and incredibly impersonal. And we can't bypass the personal. This is called like a spiritual or psychological bypass. We get to sit with ourselves and to see all of these identifications and all this pain that's coming up for us as we sit with ourselves. And perhaps our practice is to begin to see through these stories that have enslaved us, that have held us hostage. Our willingness to investigate deeply these activations and so forth that are inside us. And this is so important. You know, when we speak about the crises that are in the world, perhaps one of the most radical acts we can do is to begin to see through our own stories that separate ourselves from another.
we don't investigate our identities, we will continue to feel that sense of separation and the deep suffering. Our identities are huge. We literally kill each other over our identities. us, the them. This is called othering. It's powerful when we begin to become aware of the filters of how we see the world. This is why I love so much traveling in the sense that it breaks my ethnocentric ways of how I think the world is, because traveling to different cultures and learning different things, it kind of breaks up this set identity of how I think people are, how they should be, and so forth. But how can we begin to sit at the table with those that may not vote in the same way that we vote and try to understand one another for as long as we consider, well, that's them, there's the right, and I'm part of the left, they're the up, they're the down, they're the white, they're the black, they have different sexual or gender orientations, all these different ways of separating and othering. If we're to make peace, may we begin to appreciate the diversity, the rainbow, the spectrum of humanity and recognize because of these identifications that we have within ourselves that we are separate from one another. For thousands of years, due to these misconceptions of self, We've suppressed and oppressed one another. This is why these Dharma teachings are so valuable. They can help us to begin to see this oppression, this suppression. The oppression is based on our unawareness, on our ignorance, and it feeds the cultural conditioning. perpetuates the sense of othering. And we need to wake up to our privilege. Here I am, this white male coming from the United States. Because of this, this access that other people don't have. And because of perhaps blinders, I might not even have known that. You know, I have concerns when my kids were teenagers going out, but my black friend Yasmina, she is scared to death of her black son going out at night and what could potentially happen because of the color of his skin. So this work of identity is hugely important and part of our dharma to begin to see through our own cultural conditioning, our own bias, our own prejudice, our own blinders. The Dharma helps see 
us through these fabrications, these constructions, these concepts, how much oppression of women, how much oppression in the world due to skin, to to gender, to sexual orientation, to we just name the list of so many things that are causing so much suffering because of these misconceptions of identity. The sense of I, me, and my is huge. And of course, the Buddha was a great rebel, even in his time, because in his time, there was the caste system of India, which unfortunately still existed today, but it was an interrupter of the caste system because the Buddha declared that, that not one is noble by what birth, being born in the Brahma class. One is not determined noble in that way. One is determined noble by the purification of one's mind. And even welcomed what was known as the untouchables into the teachings to awaken just like anyone else. Our task before us is to realize that each and every one of us is sacred. Each and every one of us, no more so and no less so, is part of this beautiful world and belongs here. Our task, perhaps, is to begin to, with awareness, is to free ourselves from the stories of separation of us and them, to help wake up to begin to see more clearly through these colored lenses, these distortions. This is the task of liberating ourselves if we really want to make peace. So identity. Who am I without these stories? These stories that can separate us and to begin to appreciate and respect each other. So thus I think our deep practice is to look and look and investigate deeply these identities, how I am seeing myself in this world. So let's just sit for a few minutes, taking this in.
So this is from Dorothy Hunt. <clears throat> it's called The Tendrils of the Mind. No matter how many words arise in your mind or how many places its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or opinions it clings to, or how many attachments it has to so many stories, no matter how many shoots called projections or memories or how many judgments it imagines are true, there is one single tendril wound around all the others that must be unwound if you want to be free. The last one to drop is the one you most cherish, the one that insists that your productions are real. The tendril that causes all suffering is the one that holds tightly to a thought called me. So may we begin to see through these stories that have held us hostage, that have enslaved us. And may we grow with wisdom, with contentment, with open-heartedness, with clarity. May all beings discover the gateways into the heart, and may there be peace. So thank you and um, welcome to do some little bit of stretching and walking and we'll ring the bell in about 20 minutes and um, come back for a last sit. It was kind of a heavy night, so may you be tender with yourself. Thank you.